Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Super President! Super President! Sir, I've got the missile command. No, Jerry, we can't risk it. No man could be so brazen unless his finger was actually on the trigger. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. Donnie, please. They will be met with fire and fury. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. Like the world has never seen. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. He has been very threatening uh, beyond a normal statement. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power. Donnie, you're out of your element. The likes of which this world has never seen before. We all are real in the fury and the fire. We all are real. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from The Intercept, and this is episode 26 of Intercepted. Everyone having a good time? Yeah. 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 Thanks for having us. Donald Trump is on his version of a staycation, chilling at his golf course resort in New Jersey, popping by New York to check on Trump Tower. It would be easy to be confused over what's actually different about Trump's official vacation given that he seems to be either watching Fox News or tweeting nonstop when he's not golfing during his presidency, when he is not officially on vacation. Now, I believe firmly in workers taking time off, but if any of us spent nearly as much time on golf courses as Trump, we would have to be competing on the PGA circuit. I love golf. I think it's one of the greats, but I don't have time. 250 rounds, that's more than a guy who plays on the PGA Tour plays. He played more golf last year than Tiger Woods. No, think of it. We don't have time for this. We don't have time for this. We have to work. We have to work. On today's show, we're going to dive deep into the unfolding crisis in Venezuela and also look at a new investigative report just published by The Intercept. And it details the right-wing agenda in Latin America being pushed by a network of think tanks with deep connections to powerful conservative institutions and funders in the United States. But first, I wanted to share an update with listeners who have been following the story of the various iterations of the 
mercenary company formerly known as Blackwater and its billionaire radical right-wing founder, Eric Prince. Now, before Donald Trump was elected, Eric Prince was almost never seen in public in the U.S. He had set up a new mercenary company, registered it in Hong Kong. He was in business with powerful Chinese businessmen with deep connections to China's Communist Party. On occasion, Prince would give interviews from an undisclosed location to Steve Bannon uh, when Bannon was running Breitbart News. But in general, Eric Prince was out of the public spotlight. Now, Prince has come out from the cold, and he seems to be everywhere. He's been on Fox News. He was just on CNN. He's written op-eds in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. And what Eric Prince is openly pushing now is a plan to privatize the war in Afghanistan, a plan to use his private air force. And Eric Prince would presumably serve as some sort of mercenary viceroy over these operations. So when you talk about H.R. Uh, McMaster, National Security Advisor, and Steve Bannon, are you still talking to them about these ideas? The, uh, I would say General McMaster does not like this idea because mm-hmm. he, is a, uh, he is a three-star conventional Army general. And mm-hmm. he is wedded to that idea that the U.S. Army is going to solve this. But I think for the president, he's got to say, after 16 years, when do, we, when do we try something different? As we've reported previously on this show, Steve Bannon tried to get Defense Secretary James Mattis to take Prince's proposal seriously. We understand from reporting in the New York Times that Mattis politely declined. But Eric Prince continues to push publicly for the mercenary option. Here's the thing. The U.S. isn't doing anything below a core level, right? That's the highest unit of of movement of the Afghan army. They're not doing anything at the ground level of the Afghan army. So this can operate there, operate effectively, and create the off-ramp for the rest of U.S. forces to leave. Let's be done. In addition to all of this, A panel of federal judges ruled last week that a former Blackwater operative who was sentenced to life in prison for his role in the Nisar Square massacre in Baghdad in September of 2007 should get a new trial. That incident, where at least 14 Iraqi civilians were killed, that was the most deadly incident we know of where private military contractors killed Iraqi civilians. They opened fire on cars that were stuck in a crowded traffic circle, and they killed more than a dozen people, including women and children. This federal court also ruled, and and the language of this is just astonishing to me, that the 30-year prison sentences that were given to three other Blackwater shooters that participated in the massacre that day, that they represented cruel an unusual punishment. The 30-year prison sentences given to these guys who gunned down a bunch of Iraqi civilians was considered cruel and unusual punishment. Now, I think 30 years in prison is cruel and unusual punishment. This would not be the case that I would use to make that point. All of those men are scheduled to be resentenced, and they may actually walk free depending on what court they get. Now, I covered the Nisar Square massacre extensively, particularly the life and death that day of the youngest victim at Nisar Square, a nine-year-old boy named Ali Kanani. His father had to pick parts of his dying son's brain from the pavement after he was hit by gunfire fired by Blackwater operatives. Before September 16th, 2007, Mohammed had never heard of Blackwater 
Now he thinks of them and that day every waking moment. He remembers that Ali was not supposed to be in his car that day. Mohammed had just pulled away from his family's home on his way to pick up his sister Janan and her children for a visit. Ali came running out of the house. This ruling from the federal court is a grim symbol of the resurrection of Eric Prince and Blackwater under Donald Trump. It sends a message that impunity is the law of the land. That, coupled with Eric Prince's recent embrace by major media outlets and his coziness with the White House, should be cause for grave concern among everyone who cares about principles of democracy, liberty, and accountability. Eric Prince should be held accountable for the actions of his mercenary force, and not interviewed like he's just a businessman discussing his latest offerings of widgets. Shame on any news network that interviews Eric Prince and does not confront him with the crimes committed by his private armies. Now on with the rest of the show. We begin today with an incredible story reported by my colleague Lee Fong, an investigative reporter for The Intercept. And that story details the activities of a network of right-wing think tanks in Latin America. It's known as the Atlas Network. The name is an obvious tip of the hat to the right-wing libertarian Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged. The Atlas Network's aim is to implement neoliberal so-called free market economic policies throughout Latin America. But it's also aimed at undermining populist progressive movements. Atlas Freedom Champions are knocking down barriers to wealth creation, fighting corruption, and fostering free enterprise by reducing the role of government and protecting individual liberty. While politicians operate within the confines of what they consider politically possible, Atlas and our global partners think it's more cost-effective in the long term to change what is considered politically possible. The Atlas Network has played a key role in what many call a coup against Brazil's former president, Dilma Rousseff. The network is deeply immersed in the ongoing crisis in Venezuela. It's played a pivotal role in the chaos in Argentina. The Atlas Network has received funding from the infamous Koch brothers in the United States, And it has also sponsored training sessions with the right-wing provocateur pretend journalist James O'Keefe. In many ways, the Atlas Network appears to be a sort of modern-day analog to what the U.S. has long done in Latin America with the Central Intelligence Agency and powerful multinational corporations. Li Fang has spent months on this investigation, and he joins us now. Li, welcome to Intercepted. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's begin just by laying out what the Atlas Network is. Yeah. So, you know, this is the kind of the very first big look at an organization that's played a pivotal role in ideological formation and developing political infrastructure all across the world. The Atlas Network is a relatively small foundation uh, and think tank in Washington, D.C. that is basically designed to take the very successful political strategies that have helped shape the modern 
conservative right in the UK and in the US and to duplicate those political infrastructure strategies in country and after country all across the world. It's very familiar to anyone who kind of follows the Republican Party or the post-Reagan conservative movement to see that, you know, there's an array of foundations and think tanks and media organizations that kind of work in tandem to advance a similar policy agenda, a very kind of libertarian economic hard right idea of, you know, tax cuts for the wealthy, deregulation, privatization, and kind of attacks on organized labor. But what the Atlas Network does, uh, they take this model and they train young libertarians and, and, and business leaders in country after country on how to duplicate this model in their home country. Um, they fly them to the U.S., they provide training seminars, they teach them fundraising, they teach them political management strategies, and they provide seed financing to get these kind of think tanks that are based on the American model or the U.K. model set up, whether it's in, in Poland or Brazil. Uh, our piece focuses on the development of these political strategies in Latin America and how they're really reshaping the political landscape across the continent. And I feel like the Atlas Network, in a way, is akin to uh, basically what the U.S. Army School of the Americas was for death squads, where uh, you had officers from various Central and Latin American countries brought to the United States, trained in torture techniques, paramilitary techniques, guerrilla war techniques, and then sent back to slaughter their political opponents. This, of course, is, does not involve, you know, militaries slaughtering people, but in, in that parallel universe of electoral interference, it seems like a similar model to the what used to be called the U.S. Army School of the Americas. Yeah, and I think our piece touches on this dynamic. The National Endowment for Democracy, which was created in the early 80s under the Reagan administration to be an arm of uh, American soft power, to basically take money from the State Department and USAID and to finance American-friendly uh, nonprofits and, and NGO groups that would train politicians, that would help shape the media, help shape kind of the political dynamics in the developing world to be more friendly to U.S. foreign policy goals. I mean, this was born out in the midst of the Cold War, but it's you know continued since then. In Argentina, the Atlas Network has worked with a whole network of think tanks that train political leaders. They're very consciously duplicating the model of the Heritage Foundation or the Manhattan Institute, these very famous American conservative think tanks. And in fact, um, not only do they draw upon local billionaires and wealthy kind of industrial conglomerates for money, um, they also receive financing from the National Endowment for Democracy, this arm of U.S. foreign policy. So, you know, for these think tanks that are part of the Atlas Network that have been pivotal in shaping the political climate in these countries, there is a connection to U.S. foreign policy because they're receiving uh, taxpayer money. But also they, they play a similar role that we, we've seen attempted as the U.S. Has, has tried to kind of meddle in the local politics for much of the post-World War II era. Now, you went down to Argentina, and you've spent a lot of time, obviously, investigating the Atlas Network. I want you to talk about Alejandro Chafuen and what he told you. I'm going to let you uh, take the stage on this, but I, I can't help but think that some of the people that you interviewed just reinforce the basic thesis of Naomi Klein's seminal work, The Shock Doctrine. Alejandro Chafuen uh, goes by Alex Chafuen 
is Argentine-American. He grew up kind of in the Argentine elite in the very turbulent 60s and 70s. You had a lot of attempts and successful military coups during that era uh, with the hard right in Argentina cracking down violently on leftists and suspected leftists. And this was the kind of atmosphere that Chafuin grew up in. He gravitated to libertarian economic ideas. He was uh, a teenage devotee of Ayn Rand. He went and studied at Grove City College, a very Christian right college in Pennsylvania. He came back to Argentina very excited about uh, these emerging libertarian ideas that he gleaned from the West. So he was brought in when he was very young to work at the Atlas Network. And after the founder of the Atlas Network, Anthony Fisher, passed away, Chafwin took the reins and he's really focused the energy of, of the Atlas Network into developing an American style network of libertarian think tanks in countries all across South and Central America, with a special focus in places like Chile, Argentina, Brazil. And what Chafuan has done in places like Brazil, he's helped set up um, a network of over 13 different Atlas-backed think tanks, some of them focused on training young people to embrace libertarian ideas. Students for Liberty, the uh, libertarian youth group, was very new to Brazil only a few years ago, but now has the largest chapter in the world in Brazil. Uh, they set up organizations to basically take Catholic theology and, and Christian theology and apply them to libertarianism to make the religious case for these policies. They have kind of heritage foundation style think tanks now in Brazil that sponsor a blogger known as the the Breitbart of Brazil, someone who kind of uses very conspiracy-laden ideas to kind of ridicule anyone on the left or anyone associated with the Workers' Party, the PT Party. And, you know, when I talked to Chafuen in Argentina at the Atlas Network Latin America Forum earlier this year, um, he explained it very clearly that some of these ideas that he's developing are at the margins of society. They, they aren't popular. You know, mass privatization, cracking down on labor unions, cutting taxes for the rich. It, it's not something that comes intrinsically to a lot of these countries he's operating in. Um, they aren't popular ideas. But if you're developing a stable of young political leaders, if you're developing a foothold at universities and developing policy papers and, and concrete plans for when you take power, that when an opportunity arises and in Brazil, that's, it's a combination of two major factors, you know, decreasing commodity prices, basically sinking the Brazilian economy, which once was red hot, and uh, a mix of, of political and corruption scandals that have plagued all of the major political parties. This has given a ripe opportunity for the Atlas Network-backed think tanks to seize the crisis and push their narrow set of ideas. And that's exactly what they've done. The libertarian youth groups organized some of the largest protests in the world against Dilma, hundreds of thousands, in some cases, millions of people taking to the street to protest Dilma. Folks connected to the network, basically making the legal case to push the impeachment effort. Folks working with the, the major media outlets to kind of channel outrage solely on the Workers' Party. You know, the, they've got a crew creating uh, YouTube videos. They have columnists at the major newspapers. They have pundits on television. They've channeled this outrage at political corruption and centered it only on the Workers' Party, saying it's only their fault. So this has been an incredibly successful strategy. And I think Chafuan has acknowledged it, that you know you can develop this political infrastructure. And so it's ready to strike when there is a legitimate crisis that you can seize upon it and then implement your ideas. 
You you also uh, talked to a guy named Fernando Schuler, who is an academic at something called the Instituto Millennium, which is another Atlas think tank in Brazil. And he really railed against the unions in Brazil. Is that also part of what we're seeing here, the same attempt to undermine organized labor in the United States. Is that part of the core of what we're seeing with these Atlas network think tanks? Fernando Schuler, who's a Columbia University trained academic, someone who's very prominent in these uh, libertarian circles in Brazil. He's prominent in the Atlas network. He's helped build this political infrastructure. When I interviewed him earlier this year, he, he really made the point that he'd like to focus on the institutional hurdles for you know his agenda. And the biggest institutional hurdle that he identified were labor unions. Yeah, you know, this is kind of a fascinating dynamic of the story. I covered the Republican wave in 2010, which was followed by an orchestrated effort to attack the power of organized labor in the United States with this new wave of Republican governors and Republican legislators, particularly in the Midwest and particularly in states like Wisconsin. Um, They took this new political power and the very first thing they did was weaken their ideological and political opponents. They went after organized labor. They essentially weakened collective bargaining for public sector unions. They implemented right-to-work laws from you know Michigan, Wisconsin. They attempted it in Ohio, Indiana. And the Atlas Network has carefully studied the way that the strategy advanced. And what they say is that a network of newly empowered think tanks in the Midwest and in Wisconsin had developed the strategy and pushed it. And when unions and activists had protested, they were there for kind of a, a rapid response strategy of of ridiculing teachers' unions, of outmaneuvering them in the, in the media. And the same kind of individuals at, at think tanks like the McIver Institute in Wisconsin have given training seminars to the Latin American leaders that are operating in places like Brazil and Argentina. You know, there are folks like James O'Keefe, a very kind of well-known provocateur who uses these undercover videos to undermine labor unions and other kind of institutions on the left. Uh, He's also given talks to Atlas Network to teach them in his ways. So the Atlas Network think tanks not only want to implement big libertarian policies, um, you know, in in Brazil, they're talking about privatizing prisons, privatizing education, you know, these ideas that became popular in in the United States in in the early 90s, they're now taking root in Brazil. But they're not only doing that, they're also thinking very concretely about how to change the structural dynamics in their country. And and the very focal point for that is weakening organized labor. They see that as the biggest kind of institutional hurdle. That's the model that's been showcased in the U.S., but that's something that we can duplicate in places like Brazil. If you were to tell a narrative about the investigative reporting you've done since Trump, sort of walk people through it and the kinds of issues and stories that you've written Give us an overview of the of the investigative reporting you've done under Trump. Towards the end of the political campaign last year, um, talking to some of the editors and some of the reporters, and you know, if you look at the Obama administration, one of the best predictors of public policy on the kind of issue based level was just personnel. Personnel is policy. If you looked at the Department of Justice and who came in in Obama's first term. A lot of the bank-friendly folks, I mean, that was a great predictor of Obama not prosecuting the banks responsible for the financial crisis. Um, You're just saying that because you hate Democrats, Lee. (laughs) Clearly, clearly. But, you know, we we made the very conscious decision that whether it's Hillary Clinton or Trump, we would have a laser-like focus on the personnel. 
these folks play such an outsized role, whether it's on climate change or, or taxes or environmental policy and healthcare policy. So we've carefully taken apart who was appointed to the transition. Uh, we conducted Freedom of Information Act requests to get lists of the political appointments at every single agency. You know, when a new administration comes in, they have something like 4,000 political appointments. Below the cabinet level, there's very little focus on who these people are and what their agenda is, uh, who they're meeting with. And, you know, they have just such broad powers on any given issue. So we've done almost weekly stories on who the Trump administration is appointing. At the EPA, you know, we've done a number of stories just showing that the folks handling chemical safety issues, their former chemical lobbyists, the people kind of working on congressional outreach, they previously worked at trade group that represents some of the the highest polluting uh, power plants in the country. We're just taking a look and cataloging these conflicts of interest because I think it's important for the public interest for people to know who these people are and to provide some accountability that to let the administration know that we're monitoring what they're doing and we're keeping track of who they appoint. If you had to sort of uh, sketch out who is benefiting most from the seven months or eight months of Donald Trump's presidency, what would you say? The biggest winner so far has been the fossil fuel lobby. There's the withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord. There was these appointments, folks like Scott Pruitt at the EPA, you know, this former attorney general who has been basically a handmaiden to the oil, gas, and coal industry, to uh, lower level folks who were all oil and gas or coal lobbyists uh, throughout the Department of Interior and and the EPA and the Department of Energy. So Trump's been very friendly there. These are basically decisions that are in his hands. You know, he's been able to bypass the filibuster, do it all through administrative action. But, you know, they're not the only winners. You know, we did a story recently looking at basically all the top political appointments at the Securities and Exchange Commission. Attorneys who have formerly worked for Goldman Sachs or provided some legal services for for Goldman Sachs and, and other major banks, It's very likely that we we see the rules and and, and kind of restrictions on big banks like capital requirements or the structure of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. We're likely to see some of those changes coming up. They haven't happened yet. But just given the personnel as policy, uh, the the, the tea leaves looks like Trump is moving that direction. But in terms of one industry winner, it's it's fossil fuels. You've done some stories about powerful Democratic lobbyists just laughing off the idea of single payer. What's going on with the Democrats and health care, particularly on the issue of, of single payer? There's complete disarray in the Republican Party in terms of the policy that they don't know what to repeal and replace Obamacare with because Obamacare is based on the 2006 Massachusetts law signed by Mitt Romney, which was based on the Heritage Foundation plan that's very friendly to the private sector. You know, it basically maintains a for-profit system of health care. But the Democrats are completely unclear on how to move the ball forward. One very popular idea is uh, single payer, basically having the government act as your insurance company, the government taking care of all of your premiums and deductibles, and and you basically taking that card to a provider of your choice. This has really taken on a lot of steam recently within the Democratic base, but it's not clear where this is going. You know, for-profit healthcare interests still have a tremendous level of power uh, within the Democratic elite and within the Democratic Party, health insurance and hospital and medical device and pharmaceutical lobbyists are the biggest fundraisers uh, for the Democratic Party. They have board seats at the largest Democratic Party apparatus organizations, you know, the, the big think tanks and foundations. You referenced a story we did recently. Dick Gephardt, the former Democratic House leader, 
now kind of like uh, he's been a super delegate and uh, DNC member. I mean, he's also on the board of a health insurance company, Centene. We obtained audio from uh, the recent Centene annual investor event, and he's at a, a ritzy kind of hotel. And one of the health insurance executives at this event had asked Gephardt to come and basically give his point of view on the, where the Democrats stand on health care. And they said, is there any threat of single payer happening? Because that's basically an existential threat to our industry. It would replace us. Dick Gephardt just laughed us off and said, there is no way you could pass single payer in any intermediate future. This is the greatest health care system in the world, bar none. If you look around the world where they have single payer, I think you will find, yeah, it covers more people, but they do not have the quality and they do not have the innovation that we get because of the involvement of the private sector in our health care system. And I think that will defeat single payer approaches now and in the future. Here, here. Put me down as a grill with Leader Gephardt. Centene pays Dick Gephardt a lot, and uh, just like a lot of these for-profit healthcare interests, all of which have the potential to lose profits if, if not be completely replaced by a single-payer type system, have a lot of skin in the game. So they've used their apparatus to influence the debate. And I think for anyone in- interested in this question of where do the Democrats stand on single-payer, you have to look at a tooth. I believe it's a 2006 or 2007 document that was leaked by a whistleblower at a health insurance company after the movie Sicko from Michael Moore came out, kind of criticizing the American healthcare system and and calling for a single payer or you know single provider type type plan. Um, the health insurance industry, through its main trade group AHIP, America's Health Insurance Plans, tapped a PR firm and said, you know, how do we prevent America from moving towards single payer. This is, you know, back in 2007 or so. And they said, well, here's what you do. You know, you can use Republicans to go after after the ideas, you know, call it communism, call it socialism, demonize it. But you also have to work equally aggressively within the Democratic Party. What you need to do is you need to work with the centrist, third-way style think tanks, get people on TV, say that this would divide the party. This is too dangerous. This would alienate moderates and suburban voters. You need to tap former Democratic politicians, get them to write op-eds and disparage the idea. You need to shift the public debate. And then you need to offer for-profit health care as a proactive player to basically co-opt the debate. That's an old document, now 10 years old. But that's essentially what we're seeing, on, at least publicly, what's going on. Even though there's a, a, a demand from the grassroots and from some of the left-wing labor unions to move towards single-payer, there's a very hasty effort to smother any momentum before it, it kind of breaks out and, and, and takes on a, a role of its own. Who do you see emerging as the Democrats' preferred candidates for the 2020 presidential election? Uh, it's interesting, Margaret Sullivan of The Washington Post, when I talked to her recently, she predicted that Kirsten Gillibrand was going to get the nomination for the Democrats. I think that's a very interesting proposition. You know, Gillibrand has roots as a centrist Democrat who promoted like the NRA and the, these type of... Uh, institutions that are now anathema to the Democratic Party, but she's moved steadily to the left. She's said nice things about single payer, kind of tipping her hat to this new movement. She's also voted against almost all of of Trump's nominees, I think positioning herself as an opponent of the Trump administration. But, you know, folks like Gillibrand, Cory Booker, 
Kamala Harris. Uh, these are folks that I think the center of power within the party are, are taking a hard look at. But, you know, also folks like Senator Amy Klobuchar in Minnesota, Governor Hickenlooper in Colorado. But the party is very hesitant to embrace any kind of Bernie Sanders or Keith Ellison style candidate. They've kind of deployed their proxies to smear any attempt to position uh, these type of politicians for 2020. But uh, it is kind of absurd that we're here in 2017 already having this debate when there's so much else at stake and there's so many other big elections this year next that will come before all of this. Yeah, of course. And the 2018 elections are going to be really interesting, particularly, I mean, if Trump thinks it's bad now, if there is an actual adversarial relationship with the Senate, it'll change the game, at least in some measure in Washington. Yeah, can you imagine, like, you've, you've already seen the Trump freakout over Robert Mueller and that investigation. If Democrats control either chamber of Congress after the midterms and have their own subpoena power, you know, that's going to be uh, kind of endless political battles. But the question is, will Democrats use that to just narrowly focus on Russia or do they subpoena all these sprawling conflicts of interest um, when it's clear that private industry, oil and gas industry are in the driver's seat? If Democrats take back power in Congress, will they start investigating that side of Trump corruption as well? All right, Lee, we're going to leave it there. Lee Fong, investigative reporter for The Intercept. Thanks for being with us on Intercepted. Thanks for having me. Lee Fong is an investigative reporter for The Intercept, and in my opinion, one of the most dogged investigative journalists of his generation. You are listening to Intercepted. When we come back, we're going to dig deep into the crisis in Venezuela. We're going to take a look at how things have deteriorated so badly in this oil-rich country. Stay with us. Okay, we are back here on Intercepted. And Donald Trump, as everyone knows, loves to hate The New York Times. He's obsessed with that newspaper, constantly deriding it as a financially failing purveyor of fake news. The Times in recent days responded to some of Trump's attacks using a language that Trump clearly loves. Uh, The New York Times pointing out that its stock is up 50 percent this year. But despite this public catfight, The Times and Trump seem to be on the same page when it comes to the crisis in Venezuela. Last week, the Trump administration announced that it had designated President Nicolas Maduro and other Venezuelan officials, meaning that they're freezing their U.S. assets and also barring Americans from doing business with them personally. The Times called that the best way to confront the Venezuelan government. The New York Times, though, went a step further calling on European and other nations to join what it called a quarantine. That was the word that they use, a quarantine of Maduro. It's an interesting word choice. That was also the term used back in the 1960s for the beginning stages of the U.S. economic blockade against Cuba, which, of course, lasted for decades. Interestingly, none of these players, Trump or the New York Times, are calling for a boycott on Venezuelan oil, which the U.S. buys a lot of. U.S. hostile posturing towards Venezuela is nothing new. Washington, under both Democrats and Republicans, loathed the late Hugo Chavez and his Bolivarian revolution. Chavez also enjoyed sticking it to Washington, 
And he viewed each attack against him as a badge of honor in his struggle against Yankee imperialism. Nosotros, Yankees de mierda, sépanlo. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Estamos resueltos a ser libres. Pase lo que pase y cuéstenos lo que nos cueste. Ya basta. Ya basta. De tanta mierda de ustedes, Yankees. Hugo Chavez's successor, Maduro, does not have nearly the charisma or credibility of Chavez. And Maduro's recent actions have been disturbing even to some of Chavez's closest allies. On July 30th, the Venezuelan government held an election for a constituent assembly to rewrite the country's constitution. For many seasoned observers, this whole affair reeks of an effort to consolidate power. The vote for this constituent assembly was boycotted by many Venezuelans. And when the official results were announced, it was pretty clear that the tally had been tampered with. To discuss this complex, unfolding situation, I'm joined now by attorney Eva Gollinger. She was one of Hugo Chavez's most prominent supporters. She was very close to the late president. She knows many of the players in Venezuela personally, including its current president, Nicolas Maduro. Eva is also the author of several books, including The Chavez Code, which is based on documents that she obtained that detail U.S. interference in Venezuela, including the brief coup against Chavez during the Bush administration. Eva, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Your response to what's coming out of this administration and from The New York Times about the situation in Venezuela. There's been an ongoing escalation coming out of the United States government against the Venezuelan government since Hugo Chavez was in power. And we've seen an increase over the years as the Venezuelan government has sort of dug in deeper with their ideological model, leaning more towards this anti-imperialist alliance internationally, the more they've opened themselves up to countries like Russia and China and Iran, and then taken a position that is adversarial to the U.S. So it's nothing new. It's just that it's, it's more direct. I mean, it was President Obama who declared Venezuela an unusual and extraordinary threat to the United States and put the first sort of sanctions on Venezuela officially. I mean, from the time Chavez first was elected in 98, those initial years when he didn't comply with what the U.S. was looking for and had always had in Venezuela as a client state, that's when the U.S. backed a coup against Chavez in 2002. And subsequently, that sort of aggression just began increasing over the years. Let me share with you the administration's thoughts about what's taking place in Venezuela. We know that the action encouraged by the Chavez government provoked this crisis. 
the Chavez government suppressed peaceful demonstrations, fired on unarmed peaceful protesters resulting in 10 killed and 100 wounded. That is what took place, and a transitional civilian government has been installed. Venezuela is one of the principal suppliers of oil to the U.S. I mean, it's a commercial relationship. They're interdependent, and there's a lot of rhetoric back and forth. And yes, there's definitely an escalation of it now under Trump because the people sort of pushing this particular escalation right now that have Trump's ear are the more reactionary sectors of the Republican Party, you know, Marco Rubio, for example. I think the administration is handling this very well, very calibrated. For every step that Maduro has taken, there's a response from this administration. They've been looking for a way to push regime change in Venezuela. But it really has nothing to do with a change in policy. It's been a state policy of the United States towards Venezuela since the Chavez government. What did you make of Jeremy Corbyn's statement this week where he said he condemns uh, violence on all sides? That's a giant piece of the narrative that's been missing on what's been taking place in Venezuela. You see a lot, I mean, particularly here in the U.S., in the in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, in the Wall Street Journal, other media, CNN, you know, MSNBC. You hear a lot about these opposition protests being repressed by the government but you're not getting a full picture because while there is, you know, a state reaction taking place, there is repression with tear gas and rubber bullets, you're not seeing the other side of it, which is that those are not exactly peaceful democratic protests. You know, there's smaller factions. I mean, there are parts of the opposition in Venezuela that act within a democratic framework, but there is a very violent faction that's gotten out of control. It's anarchical. I mean, they where they're using Molotov cocktails, homemade bombs and weapons, and they're using them against the state security forces. So, I mean, it's really an equal number of deaths on both sides. And overall, I mean, the opposition leadership, the anti-government leadership in Venezuela have been reluctant to come out and fully condemn, you know, those types of violent protests. In fact, they've been encouraging them because they've seen it as sort of this way to, you know, heat up the streets to pressure the government to, I mean, overall, what they've been looking for is for Maduro to resign for a regime change, which they've been unsuccessful. I want to just ask you directly if you believe that this recent uh, voting for a national constituent assembly, do you believe that that was a legitimate, free, fair vote and that the tallies announced by the government are accurate? There's a lot of indication that it wasn't a free and fair vote, that the tallies are not accurate. But in the end, it didn't matter because they pushed forward with this election of delegates to a constituent assembly to rewrite a constitution that was already one of the most lauded constitutions in the world that had been done and written by a very participatory open process that was led, in fact, by Hugo Chavez in 1999. So there was a lot of questioning, including for myself, as to why would this be the answer to Venezuela's problems now when we already had a constitution there? Well, so why did they do it? I mean, in the end, that vote was just about choosing the slates of people that had already been nominated by the government's party to participate in rewriting a constitution. It didn't matter in the end how many votes they got. The fact that the numbers may have been fudged by the government is absolutely an absurd move on their part because they were just trying to posture in front of the opposition who had conducted an also an unverified and unofficial plebiscite weeks earlier where they say they got, you know, over 7 million votes. 
saying that they didn't want this process to happen. So, you know, it was really just sort of a back and forth show off between both sides in terms of the numbers. But it wouldn't have mattered had the government gotten four million votes it still would have gone forward. Well, it, ma- it, matters, it? It, it matters because people who play with votes, that is an inherently sort of authoritarian move to fabricate vote tallies. You know, Saddam Hussein used to win by 101% of the vote. Now, my guess would be that he, because of the nature of the repression in Iraq, that he would have probably won anyway in some kind of an election. But, you know, the idea that you would tamper with it at all completely undermines the idea that your forces are the pro-democratic forces, no? Absolutely. And there's no question. I mean, it seems as though the numbers were fudged by more than a million votes. So it put them over the threshold of what the opposition alleges they got in their unofficial plebiscite. It was just to say, you know, we have more than you do. So then therefore we have a legitimate mandate. And for me, it's extremely disturbing because Venezuela since 2004 has had one of the most bulletproof election systems. In this particular election, almost all of those were eliminated. So there's a lot of evidence to show that the vote, definitely the number could have been fudged. And that it's unfortunate because it there's a constituent assembly in place that is a supra-supreme power that has now declared they will be in power a minimum or maybe a maximum of two years, which is surprising because Hugo Chavez ran on a party platform in 1998 to rewrite the Constitution. He was elected by a majority based on that as being one of the primary actions he would take. Then there was it was put to a vote after he was elected to whether or not people actually wanted to proceed. More than 70 percent of those participating said yes. Then they elected the members. Then it was done in this extremely open, transparent way. And it wasn't all supreme that it could be a legislator and an executor and an enforcer, which is what we're seeing now. So that's why there's a lot of concern coming from people like myself, you know, where I'm seeing, wait a minute, what what happened to sort of our democratic framework that has been so upheld throughout this time period, despite, you know, a lot of cracks in the system along the way? Now we're seeing a major rupture. Well, and I don't know anything about Maduro's family members and their qualifications, but just the idea that you had his son and his wife now part of this constituent assembly combined with the what seems to be pretty clear case of manipulating the numbers, albeit perhaps unnecessarily, as you say, the aesthetic there is really bad for Maduro. Of course, the optics are terrible. But you have to understand that that corruption and nepotism are parts of Venezuelan society. I mean, it's it's ironic because when Hugo Chavez one in 1998, his two principal sort of promises in addition to the Constitution were eradicating poverty and corruption. You know, the governments that were in place before he was elected were extremely corrupt. I mean, that's why people were so disgusted with the sort of two-party system that was in place in Venezuela since the fall of the last dictatorship in 1958, and they wanted to break free with it. When I first went to Venezuela in 1993, The country was in a complete collapse. There was an economic crisis. The currency was devaluating and and the inflation was increasing. I mean, many of the things that are happening now, which is why it's so ironic. And then there was a suspension of constitutional rights. There was a national curfew. There was a forced military draft. Poverty had grown to around 80 percent. You know, there was an elite control over the country's oil wealth and the oil industry, despite the fact that it was nationalized in 1976. So when people voted for Hugo Chavez and this idea of a Bolivarian revolution, they wanted to break free of a corrupt system. 
So the fact that now it's sort of coming full cycle and we're seeing the nepotism reemerging, the corruption proliferating, the exclusionary tactics taking place, the sort of suppression of dissent, you know, the poverty increasing, the inflation, the economy falling again. I mean, one looks at it and says, well, is this just the destiny of a country that has the bittersweet curse of oil? And I wanted to ask you about that. You know, one of the critiques has been this massive over-reliance on oil revenue and that that's part of what has fueled the anti-democratic realities that we're seeing unfold in parts of the situation in Venezuela. Absolutely. But I mean, it's not, again, it's nothing new. It's how the country has been functioning for decades. It's just that before most of that oil wealth was going into the pockets of an elite. Maduro essentially has tried to continue ineffectively the social policies that made Chavez so popular. You know, when oil was reaching $60, $70 a barrel, Venezuela was spending lavishly, not just on social programs, but on infrastructure, on all kinds of, you know, international agreements and buying things. And one of the visions that Chavez himself had was to invest those natural resources and strategic resources to use those instead of just exporting them to be able to have the technology inside the country to use them to build up the infrastructure and other domestic industries to reduce dependency on oil, you know, something that never happened. And so the dependency continues. And certainly, I mean, it's a huge cause of the crisis the country's facing today is that over-dependency and reliance on oil, not just on the part of the government, but also by the people who have become dependent on it in terms of expecting their piece of it, the overall entitlement that people feel when they live in a system like that where the state is all-encompassing and provides so many of their basic services. It does seem that there is a trend under Maduro that echoes some of what we've seen in other governments in the region where all of the crises and all of the problems are essentially blamed on the United States or U.S. intervention. Now, of course, you you wrote an entire book detailing U.S. dirty tricks and intervention in Venezuela, the Chavez Code, where you examined all of this in detail. Clearly, the United States is constantly interfering in the affairs of countries around the world, but certainly throughout uh, Central and South America. But it seems that that becomes a little bit too convenient to just constantly say, oh, well, this is because of the United States. This is because of U.S.-backed groups. This is all a a U.S.-created opposition. Am I wrong? I mean, it seems like that is answer number one from the pro-Maduro camp. One of the things that made Chavez so popular initially was when he engaged in a military rebellion or a, a coup against this corrupt president in um, 1992, and it failed. Hugo Chavez, this young lieutenant colonel, came out in front of the cameras and took responsibility for the failure. Lamentablemente, por ahora, los objetivos que nos planteamos no fueron logrados en la ciudad capital. Es decir, nosotros acá en Caracas no logramos controlar el poder. For Venezuelans, it was like a shock and awe moment. I mean, here we have someone in a position of leadership who's actually saying, I failed and I take responsibility. There will be more to be continued. The story will be continued, which it most certainly was. But that was sort of a change, a shift that was very attractive to a lot of people in a country where so many had just blamed others for their mistakes or just turned their back on it. And now we're seeing that again. I mean, that's been one of my criticisms is... Yes, there's no question 
Is the U.S. funding the opposition in Venezuela? Absolutely. They've been doing it for years. You know, I mean, I've thoroughly documented it by using the Freedom of Information Act and uncovering the U.S.'s own documents where they show that they're funding the opposition. Are they backing and pushing for a regime change? Totally. I mean, Mike Pompeo said it the other day in a, you know, a, a public forum. Anytime you have a country of as large and with the economic capacity of a country like Venezuela, America has a, uh, a deep interest in making sure that it is stable and as democratic as possible. We heard it from Rex Tillerson the other day, the State Department, straight out. We are evaluating all of our policy options as to what can we do to create a change of conditions where either Maduro decides he doesn't have a future and wants to leave of his own accord, or we can return uh, the government processes back to their constitution. Are there mistakes and responsibilities on the part of the government? Absolutely. I mean, there's been widespread mismanagement. They've made horrific economic decisions in terms of the currency and skyrocketed the inflation in a parallel black market for the dollar. I mean, and then at the same time, the contracts that the government has engaged in with companies to supply, you know, food products and all kinds of other consumer products to the countries. They've been rife with corruption. You know, there's there's over $300 billion that have been embezzled out of the country over probably the past like four or five years that have been unaccounted for. The government can't just say, oh, we have no role in this. I mean, it's not always, you know, the boogeyman's fault, but it's cer- I mean, the U.S. certainly has a role, an open, notorious role in not only backing an anti-government, undemocratic in many ways opposition in Venezuela and promoting regime change. I mean, and that's the other factor in this is that the government, of course, is in power, you know, the Maduro government. So they bear always a larger responsibility for what's happening in the country than, you know, those outside of it. But there's no question that the opposition represents, you know, sort of the old school wealthy elite that control the private enterprises that have, you know, run Venezuela for for decades. But certainly you also have a significant swath of Venezuelan society that also is opposed to Maduro that is not on the U.S. payroll. Absolutely. I mean, it would be outrageous to say that they're all on a payroll or they're paid protesters. It reminds me of, you know, Donald Trump saying that about anyone who protests against him. It's ridiculous. Chavez was was in office from essentially 1999 until he passed away in early 2013. And now Maduro has been in office ever since. So it's a complete generation that has grown up only knowing this government. And so, of course, I mean, it they blame this government for the problems that they're experiencing in the country, rightfully so. They have no reference of how it was before. Things were repressive, when there was real persecution, when there was torture, you know, when there was no distribution uh, of the oil wealth and when the poverty rates were so high. That, for many people today, is an unknown past. They only care about what's happening now. So there's a percentage of the population that sticks by this government because they don't want what they see as the old guard to get back into power because they fear that things will return to how they were before. They fear that they'll become invisible again and marginalized and excluded and persecuted. And they're probably right in a lot of that. What they say essentially is, yeah, we know they're corrupt. Yeah, we know things aren't great, but the alternative is worse. Right. And I most certainly agree with your history there about the outside forces that supported that coup and then what the coup masters wanted to do. And on the one hand, you have certain people within Venezuela and in the region 
who believe that defending the Venezuelan state, even with its flaws, is necessary because it's an anti-imperialist and popular government. And then you have other groups that are, are recognizing everything you're saying about the nature of some of the opposition groups, but are calling Maduro's government increasingly delegitimized and authoritarian. And I wanted to ask you, given that you knew Hugo Chavez well, that you wrote this book exposing U.S. interference in Venezuela based on the United States government's own documents, do you believe that what Maduro and his allies are doing right now betrays the legacy of Hugo Chavez? I think in some ways it's on that path, certainly. There certainly isn't a conscientious effort to betray Chavez's legacy, but one of my main issues with Well, I, I think it's a pretty know, conscientious effort when you cook the books on a on a on a well, referendum. That, right. That type of that type of behavior to me is completely unacceptable and obviously betrays that legacy and and not just the legacy of Chavez, but of the whole Venezuelan democratic structure that's been reinforced, you know, one was hoping this sort of more participatory democracy over the past, or at least up until about 2012, before things started to completely fall apart. We can criticize the actions of the Maduro government, and we can say some of them are betraying Chavez's legacy. And we can also come out against any kind of U.S. intervention or efforts to impose regime change, as would be the same in any country around the world. You know, violating the sovereignty of another nation is unacceptable. But at the same time, there's there still are millions of people in grassroots movements who are fighting for their democracy. And they have their issues as well with the people who are in power, but they're not willing to let go and give up and cede their space to those on the far right wing who would take power were this present government to lose power. I mean, Venezuela doesn't have any middle ground at this time. That's why I think there's a lot on the of people on the outside and the left who are saying, let's just criticize and speak up against foreign intervention in Venezuela and say nothing about Maduro. There are those who are saying, no, no, we need to talk about the increasing authoritarian characteristics of this government, the betrayal maybe of aspects of Chavez's legacy and all that was achieved under a Bolivarian revolution that we're now seeing come unravel. And, you know, there are those saying, no, we need to stick by Maduro and just back him and keep our mouth shut. All of that debate needs to be had. But at the same time, you have to look at what is the role of people who are not directly involved in that movement? Which are the voices and the people who really matter who are in that movement? Is it Maduro himself and the people right around him in the structure of, of power at the top? Or is it the grassroots, the social movements, the workers, the community organizers, the people who are actually the ones trying, struggling to hold on to anything that's left of this movement that they have been building and empowering themselves with now over the past, you know, 15 years or so. We hear from the opposition in U.S. media all the time. We hear from all the critics, but we never hear from people. Not I'm not saying people would come out and say, oh, I love Maduro, I support Maduro. But people in communities, poorer people in the working class, I mean, that's the majority of people really who comprise the Chavez movement in Venezuela. It's not this elite power structure that's corrupted at the top. Now, with the exception of designating Maduro, the Trump administration seems to be essentially continuing, albeit with its own sort of spin, the basic U.S. policy toward Venezuela, uh, at least publicly. What does this mean that Maduro has been designated and that assets have been frozen? 
Well, it doesn't mean much inside Venezuela. In fact, it's seen as a badge of honor. Every time someone has been singled out by the U.S. government in recent years and given one of these sanctions, they've been awarded by Maduro himself recently the Sword of Bolivar, which is a replica of Simón Bolívar's sword, the founding father of Venezuela. It seems to kind of backfire because it really rallies the people and the troops around the government in the face of an external threat. The Western world can come out against Venezuela. First of all, they're not cutting off the oil supply. Were they to do that, they would harm more U.S. interests probably than than Venezuela, practically, since it's 30% of the oil supply to the United States. And they have six refineries here in the United States. And Venezuela owns the Sico gas chain, which has, you know, thousands of gas stations throughout the country. But as long as Venezuela maintains their commercial ties and their strategic alliance with countries like Russia and China, they're not going to back down in the face of an external threat. They're just going to get stronger in terms of doubling down. And I think that's something that it seems the U.S. government or those who have the ear of whoever's conducting that particular foreign policy fail to understand. Well, um, and it, if, if uh, you know, if Venezuela was uh, was producing vegetable oil instead of black gold, I think we'd see <laughs> a very different uh, situation. What do you think would be the most effective path forward, given now that the United States has publicly taken this very hostile position toward Maduro and that you have an increasing chorus of voices, including people that are certainly not on the U.S. payroll, basically saying, look, Maduro, you're tilting toward authoritarianism here. Like, What should happen going forward in order to resolve this? Holding elections. The problem now is that because of the fact that the electoral system may have been compromised, most likely was in this past election, and because of the fact that now there's a super government body in place that could decide whether or not elections take place, or even if those elections take place, they'll still have power above whoever wins office. So, you know, it, it seems as though there needs to be some negotiating going on in terms of, you know, setting clear lines and a structure for how things are going to evolve. There has to be an electoral way out. There cannot be a regime change, not a coup, not any kind of anarchical, violent protests in the streets to push the country further to a civil war. Venezuela is a country with a lot of guns, and it's grown increasingly violent over the years. People have become more and more sort of radicalized in their positions. And I think all efforts internationally, as well as those internally, should be looking for a negotiated way out that would have to include some kind of truth and justice commission amnesty for those who have been involved in all the events and developments over the past couple of years. Because you can't find a way out of the situation if people feel as though they're going to be persecuted once they're out of power. Despite, you know, on both sides, there have been crimes. And, and it's just an unfortunate reality. So that that way, at least, you know, there will be a feeling that people can move on and pass this without persecution. All right, Eva Gollinger, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us on Intercepted. Thanks, Jeremy. Eva Gollinger is an attorney and author of several books, among them, The Chavez Code. To close today's show, our producer, Jack Desidoro, spoke to Venezuelan singer and songwriter Claudia Lazardo of the band La Pequeña Revancha. 
Hello, I'm Claudia Lizardo. I'm 29 years old. I live in Caracas, Venezuela. I'm a musician and a copywriter, and I have a band that's named La Pequeña Revancha, The Little Revenge. The crisis in, 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 in the music scene has been very, very harsh because a lot of people have immigrated. So that impacts directly on any plans you can have to develop a band and to have a stable band. I dream that my country goes out of this in a peaceful way and through elections and through the vote, which is, I think, the biggest tool and the most powerful tool we Democrats have. Democrats, I mean people that believe in democracy. So that would be the ideal scenario for me. The thing is, this country ha has a history of military action. So I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, there are a lot of people that think that the way out of this is the most violent, aggressive way. I'm not a politician. I'm not an expert. But I do wish that we go out, that we can come out of this peacefully, because there has been a lot of people that have died and a lot of people incarcerated. There's a lot of fear on the streets. I have a lot of fear. I'm, 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 I'm scared. Uh, I'm scared to, to the core. You know, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm the daughter of a very important musician in Venezuela. My father, he had a legendary band, a rock and roll band called La Misma Gente, which translates to the same people. The day that Chavez passed away, that day I, I don't I have a, like a very blurry memory of it because that same day my father was having a, a massive stroke. And it was very interesting because my father just stepped kind of stepped out of the music scene and I finally got the chance to to do my thing, you know, and, and I kind of inherited all of this, all of the, all of his guitars, etc. So it was kind of a, yeah, it was interesting, like a, like a switch happened there. And this is a song that I, I, I wrote about my father. It's called Yo Era el Sol. Yo Era el Sol means I was the sun. As I was telling you, my father suffered a severe stroke, a massive stroke back in 2013. And he was, as, as I was telling, a very a legendary musician. He was a very charismatic musician, and he was a songwriter, and, he's, and, he, he's, and he talked a lot, and he was very outgoing. And, and it was very ironic and very sad because the stroke, he didn't die. He's, he's very good. The thing, the thing is that the stroke uh, eliminated his speech and his, and, and his ability to play his guitar. So it's very... Ironic that life takes away what you need to identify yourself. People that don't know the story often often tell me that the song is about the country, because it's a song about longing and about the nostalgia for something that was that that that's that's not there anymore. 
So that that happens with Venezuela. We 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 don't recognize ourselves in the mirror anymore. And there's a lot of, of melancholy and nostalgia about what we were. So that's Yo Era El Sol. And I hope you like it. <laughs> Yo era el sol y brillaba sobre ti. That is Yo Era El Sol by Claudia Lazardo, a musical artist from Caracas, Venezuela. She's part of the band La Pequeña Ravancha. And that does it for this week's show and for this second season of Intercepted. We will return again for season three on September 13th. 
All 26 of our episodes to date are available at theintercept.com slash podcasts. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We are distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack DeZadoro, and our executive producer is Lital Molad. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Elise Swain is our production assistant and graphic designer. Many thanks to Rino Dunic in Zadar, Croatia, for engineering help for this week's episode. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next month, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.